I want to take a moment to um, just tell you about what's coming next. And that, um, and that is we're starting a brand new sermon series next week. And so we're wrapping one up today, and next week we're starting a new sermon series. And if you've been with us a while, you know that we preach different kinds of sermon series here. They're not all the same. So, for example, we've been studying this current series on James since mid-May, and we'll be wrapping that up here today. And that's been kind of a through, the, through a book of the Bible type series. But we're going to do a few weeks on a topic next, uh, starting next week. I'm excited about that. We're going to be talking about how to get ahead starting next Sunday. And this is a big idea, and I want you to come and be a part of this. And I want you to be willing to invite others. So we even have invite cards on the table in the back by the giving box here. And there's invite cards that talk about the series, the times, and how to join us. You could take this and put it on, your, put it on the most sacred place in your life where you'll never miss it. I'd say... Uh, in your prayer closet, but maybe on your refrigerator would be better. Uh, at least it would be for, for many of us, right? But, but seriously, get one of these and pass them on to a visitor, uh, I'm sorry, to a friend of yours, and invite them to come be, be a guest with us this sermon series. And if you watch online, you can invite someone to join you online starting next week. Uh, a little bit of, a, of the write-up says, do you, ever, do you ever look for an opportunity to do something for yourself or for someone else and regret having to say, I can't? Life has a way of making us feel like we're falling behind. But what if there was a way to truly get ahead? A way to create more I can moments for you and the people and causes that you care about. We believe that there is a way and we'd love to share it with you. It will take some work, but the payoff will be well worth it. And that starts next Sunday. I believe that there will be both um, well, there'll be a lot of Bible. We're using a lot. There's a lot of scripture for the series. So that's going to be good. And there's a lot of practical, just practical wisdom that those things should go together, right? They do. And um, we are going to actually have a visual aid on stage here for you that'll be very memorable, I hope. And we're going to give a little something, put a little something in your hands next week as well. You don't want to miss next week as we get started and kind of set the stage for the whole thing, literally. So uh, that's next week. I hope you'll be here. hope you'll bring a friend and grab an invite card and pass along the message as we get ready to start talking about a couple weeks of how to get ahead. Today, we're wrapping up our current sermon series. We've been studying the book of James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, and he was also the... Um, uh, he, 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 didn't, he didn't believe on Jesus until after Jesus died and rose again. Then he became a believer, and he eventually became a leader in the early church, and he gave his life to the name of Jesus and died for it. And in the, in the process, he wrote a letter to other churches outside of his own ministry in Jerusalem. He wrote a letter to other churches to influence them in following Jesus. And that letter has been preserved for us today in what we call our Christian scriptures or what we might call the New Testament. Um, it's in there for us. Um, and we've been studying it since mid-May, and if you ever wanted to, to check out any of the old sermons and you've not been a part of it with us, you can go to our website, lighthousecedarlake.com, and there's a um, spot to watch the messages. You can watch them or listen to them. They're also on Apple Podcast as well. So anyhow, those things um, are available to you. But today we're going to wrap up our James series, and we're going to look at the last two verses of James. And I'm going to tell you something. I love how this letter finishes up. I love it. Because what James does here at the end, what James does here at the end of this book, of this letter, is he just sends his audience off with such an important reminder 
that I hope it sticks with us like he meant it to. So powerful. Let's, let's read the verses together. We'll read them again later in the message as well. James 5, verse 19. My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back. Now we're going to stop before we finish the sentence in the next verse. And look at this verse. James is writing to people about someone who wanders away from the truth. And he's talking about people who he's writing to people in their, in their faith community. People who are gathered in the name of Jesus. He calls them my dear brothers and sisters. He says, if someone among you, if someone among you, in other words, one of you who've, who've come to know the Lord, who've come to follow Jesus with you, but they, they wander away from the truth. They wander away from the truth. In other words, they might wander away from believing anymore. They might wander away from the idea of faith. Because that happens sometimes. People begin to, to doubt. And by the way, uh, there's almost always, there's always doubt involved in faith. Someone once defined faith as believing and doubting, but acting on the belief. Believing and doubting, but acting on the belief. And so maybe someone among them believed, but they wandered away. They, they started acting on the doubt instead. And they wandered away from the truth. Or perhaps it wasn't their beliefs, perhaps it was their behavior, which really is about our beliefs. If we believe the Lord, if we believe in what God says, then believing him means we would believe we should do what he says. So anytime we behave differently than we're supposed to and do something wrong, then ultimately it's a faith issue at the core, right? So someone wanders away of their beliefs, they wander away of their behavior, they just wander away from the truth, whatever that means, James says, my dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back. So in other words, the implication is that they are brought back. And what he says next is very important because what he tells them next is that they should be taken, put in a special room, forced to wear a cap that says bad, bad person, beaten regularly. No. If, if, if someone wanders away from the truth and is brought back, verse 20, he says this. You can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. Wow, that's a mouthful. Let's unpack it. He says, whoever brings that person, whoever. It doesn't have to be, a, you could be theologically knowledgeable or not. You could be skilled or not. You could be whatever you think you are. Anyone, anyone can do this. Whoever steps up to the plate, whoever brings the sinner back. I and mean, that word sinner there is always ominous for us, isn't it? Like sinner, you sinners. And, but really, when we say the word sinner before you get all you know, weird about it because it's a church term, remember that any time that we don't do what is right, it's sin. So if you, if you or I had a bad attitude this weekend or today, we had a bad attitude we were in our hearts, that's not right, that's sin. If, if you snapped at your spouse or your family because you're stressed, so I was just because I'm stressed. I know, but it's not right. It's sin, right? And from our thought life to our attitudes, our behaviors, all sorts of things are, whenever we don't do what's right, James, James himself earlier in this letter told us that when we know what is good to do, but we don't do it, it's sin. Or whatever's not of faith is sin. So here's the thing about, about it all. We're all sinners, and so he's saying when you have one among you who their sin is, they're currently wandering, their sin is they're wandering away from the truth. 
They've gone away. They've, they've taken that path. That's what they're doing. You and I have all sinned in our own ways, in our own times. But you're, 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 you're faithful right now, largely, but someone has wandered away. Whoever brings that person back from wandering will do two things. James says, number one, they will save that person from death. Save that person from death. What does that mean? We'll think of death, we think of physical death most commonly, or spiritual death. But there's a lot of forms of death, isn't there? Some of us have done things that perhaps in your life that have caused other kinds of death. You could bring death to a marriage. You could bring death to a relationship of any kind. You could bring death to a career. Death to a reputation. Death to financial stability. Death to uh, a clear conscience. I mean, there's a thousand ways we, we experience death. And that's what James said earlier. If you were with us in chapter 1, James explained that when our wrong desires and our lusts conceive, they give birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. And so when someone wanders and someone brings them back, you can save that person from experiencing death on so many number of ways for the heartache and the consequences of bad choices. So the person, whoever they are, that brings someone back who's wandered can save that person from hard consequences, from experiencing death. And number two, it says, they bring about the forgiveness, the forgiveness of many sins. Now, what's he referring to the forgiveness of many sins? You mean, you mean with God? Well, yeah, I mean, God forgives, and he, God's more forgiving than, than we can possibly imagine. God's pursuing them himself. But the context here about the forgiveness of many sins is referring to bringing them back in amongst the people and finding forgiveness. Because here's what happens. When people wander away, a lot of people, religious people, have a hard time coping with that. Get very upset with people they see wandering because they should know better. They struggle with being offended or hurt by what they do. He says you can bring, someone can step out of that that I can't believe so-and-so did such and such state. And someone could leave that little gossip buzz and walk away and, and minister and, and over time perhaps be a part of somebody returning to the Lord and bringing reconciliation to where there's been division and upset people. And that person will be safe for the consequences of their sin and also see restoration and forgiveness take place. Who's the one who makes this happen? Whoever. You and I today can be the whoever. James calls us today to be the whoever. He ends his letter appealing to Jesus' followers to follow Jesus. To be the, the whoever brings people back. See, we preach about this all the time. You've heard me say it so many times before that we preach the gospel the gospel, the gospel is an old church word. Some of us like the old church words because they are comforting to us in our old church lives. But for those who don't hear it a hundred times over, gospel simply means good news. Good news. What's so good about, it should be good news. I've seen versions of Christian churches that didn't seem like they had much good news. But it should be good news, right? I mean, that's what Jesus came to give us, good news. What's the good news? Well, in, in practice, the good news is that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, rose again on the third day. That's the doctrinal thesis. But on a more macro level, the good news is simply that God is love. For the reason Jesus went to the cross is that God so loved the world that he gave his son. That, that, that the message that God is love is our good news, that he did what it took to bring us back to him. 
And I've often made this statement, and the cross demonstrates God's love in this way. I've often said that God wanted us back more than he wanted us to pay. Isn't that really what it comes down to? That's what the cross shows us, that God wanted us back more than he wanted us to pay. So he paid. That's what we sing about. That's what we've been singing about this morning if you heard the words of the song. That's what, that's what it's about. God wanted us back more than he wanted us to pay. That's good news. Jesus showed us that, that love of God. So if that's true, if God wanted us back more than he wanted us to pay, then why don't we want people back more? You know? Why don't we? Here's why we don't. We take it so personally when people sin in our eyes. Now, I'm not saying sin like, because the problem is we're all sinners, but they sin differently than us or worse than us or against us. We take it so personal. And sometimes it is personal in a way, but even then it's not personal, but I'll get to that in a moment. But, but we see people do something around us and we're like, I can't believe that. They've, they've offended my sensibilities. I've, people are always being offended. In their, my, they've offended my sensibilities. Their behavior is an offense to me. I don't know how many times in my life I've seen religious people. And boy, social media has not helped us. The internet has not helped us. Now we all have a little soapbox. We log online and our social media says, what's on your mind? I have to say what's on my mind. It tells me what's on my mind. I've got to say what's on my mind because it's right there in the box, you know. And so we feel the, the entitlement to just to say, I just can't believe people. I'm offended by how people behave. I'm offended by the world. I'm offended by other people. They offend my sensibilities. And usually we're mad at the world non-Jesus followers, because they don't live by our book. They're not living by my book. It's not their book. It's your book. They're not living by it. Here's the crazy part. We're not living by it all that well ourselves half the time. But we're all mad at somebody else for not living by it. They don't even claim to believe it. And so then we're mad. But then there's someone among us who's supposed to know better. That's the worst part. Well, I'm okay with other people in theory, but that person should know better. They've offended me by their behavior. They've offended me by... They've offended my sensibilities. And it's arrogant for us. You say, well, but here's how we do it. We call it righteous indignation, but it's really self-righteousness. But we, we umbrella it under a righteous indignation. I'm angry for God's sake. I'm upset for God's sake. They've offended God with their behavior. I'm offended for his sake. Really? Okay, well, while you're ranting for God's sake, remember this, that God's attitude towards them is he died for them. He gave his life. We're going to see some more scripture in a minute. He was going out of his way to bring them back desperately while you're sitting there, your arms crossed, upset, for God's sake. Maybe you should take a, if you're really doing it for God, maybe try, try it his way. Because God wanted us back more than he wanted us to pay. But we get so offended. And sometimes it is personal. Someone does something wrong to you. Maybe your spouse wrongs you, your children wrong you. Or they, your children to go a different path. By the way, I'm not saying this to moms and dads just for free here. You know, my children upset me because they're not doing exactly the way, what I would do, the way I would do it. And they don't believe exactly the way I would believe. They're not my clone. Like, I'm not my parents' clone, but that's different because, you know, I'm right. I mean, seriously, guys. I mean, so we get upset with people. But people are individuals with individual soul liberty. Do you know that? People are individuals with individual soul liberty. It's between them and God. And even when it's personal, and most of the time we make it personal when it's not really personal. We just take offense at people. But here's the thing. It's not about us. 
I know that sometimes people can mess up our little, our little world the way we have it ordered. Here's my world. Here's my friends. Here's my acquaintances. Here's my church people. Here's my small group. And then someone can like mess up our little puzzle, break up our friend circle, do something else to shake up our, the way we see things by their going a different direction. They go away from faith. They go away from whatever, away from truth. They go down a different path. They make a big mistake, perpetual mistake, and it messes up our little world. And so we get so upset. But it's not about us. It's about them and God. And God loves them and wants them back. If God still wants them back anyway, why don't we? If that statement we preach about on the screen right there, I say it so often. If that statement's true, then so is this. We, we should want people back more than we want them to pay. We should want people back more than we want them to pay. Well, I'll have them back if they'll pay. As long as they know their place and they show they're sorry and they've paid enough of a price. Or maybe I'll just give them a cold shoulder for a while so they know how I feel. Or always make sure they feel less than because they've messed up. We should not. We should want people back more than anything, more than we want them to pay. Well, someone's got to pay. Exactly. Jesus showed us how that works too, didn't he? You see, we can pay. Now, let me, let me pause here before I make that point clearer and say this. This is where this is coming from. In fact, if the next, if you, hopefully you're not dr- dr- you know, tuning me out today, but if, you, if you're tempted to, please hear the next few minutes. Because what I'm going to say now, we need to get this into our psyche in every church everywhere. Some churches do this very well. I, think, I hope our church does. I don't have, there's no, I'm not addressing a problem here at all, not that I'm, I'm aware of. But I've been around church a long time. I've seen this done poorly. And I know it happens all the time. So I want to address something that everyone needs to hear wherever we are in the world. That we as Christians and, and we as churches, sometimes we can, be, we can be pretty good about showing grace and doing this kind of stuff for people that we meet when we see people that are broken. We're good at showing grace to people that come our way that are broken. But we're very seldom good about showing grace while we're watching them break. Did you hear me? We're good at showing grace to the broken, but we're not very good at showing those grace while we're watching them break. I'm just going to get into the space for a bit here. I'm going to tell you the common story in church somewhere, any church, our church, any church. Someone comes to a church, they walk through the doors. I was like, oh, we're so glad you're here. More people, yay. We're so glad to have you here. And that person manages to come back. And they manage to stick around and people get to know that person. And that person begins to say, oh man, listen. And when you find out their story, you find out it's a story of brokenness. Maybe it's a person who used to know the Lord or used to live for the Lord and he was active in their faith and in church. But at some point in their life they walked away. Maybe they walked away from their beliefs and found themselves in a dark place for a long time and they're coming back. Or maybe they walked away from their marriage. Or maybe they walked away from something. They, they, they walked into a, an addiction. And they made a big old mess of themselves. And they came back to God and tried to find they, they're so broken and lost by life and by bad decisions they've made. They come back to church and the church says, well, we're so glad you're here. And the church hears about their brokenness. And the church is like, oh man, that's okay. We love it. We're all broken in different ways, brother or sister. We're all the same. We we don't care about that. We love you. We're glad you're here. And then that person tells the story about how their last church, 
the one that watched them break, wasn't so gracious to them. They told us about how their last church, you know, you know, kind of ran them out or gossiped about them or was harsh or critical or basically said, don't come back. And we hear that story. The, other, the church they come into hears that story and says, oh, well, we, we love you for who you are. And that church should never have been so ungracious. But we're a church that cares about people. We feel so better about ourselves. We care about people this church. Until that church, this church, watches someone in its group actively breaking. And then they do the same thing that the other church did. They get offended. They're shocked. They find fault. They talk amongst themselves. They gossip. They push people away. They, they, they edge people out of their lives. And that person ends up wandering away, breaking in a hundred pieces. And someday they come back to God, they go to another church, and that church is like, oh, well, we, we love you here, come in, we love the broken. And that last church should have been more gracious to you. It's the same cycle. Everyone feels so good about themselves. Every church feels good. It's not a big, great, hairy deal for us to love people who come broken. Because you know why? It wasn't personal to us. I, if someone comes here and, they, and, they, and they're in pieces, I didn't know them before them. Seriously, we didn't know them before that state. So for us, that's just normal. And we just, we believe in the gospel. I want to believe God's goodness is for me and for you. So I'm all about grace for you, brother. But it's one thing to, to, to preach this message for how we treat the broken. But we're kind of crummy at how we treat those who are breaking, aren't we? And I'm not saying that you can stop them from making choices. People have individual soul liberty. I'm not saying you can keep them from going on a bad path. But we can certainly not slam them against extra rocks of our hostility, make it that much harder for God to work in their lives and get them to a place where they know they can come back because of how we've cut them off or mistreated them. That's on us. We should want people back more than we want them to pay. You're like, but Arlen, someone's got to pay. We can pay. You say, well, that's not fair. Who says anything about fair? The gospel's not fair. Hey, by the way, here's the thought for today. The gospel's not fair. It wasn't fair to Jesus. And to follow him in, in practicing it is not fair to you or me. If you're playing the fair game, you're going to always be miserable because life's not fair. It's better than fair. It's better than that. It's grace-filled. It's on us to do this. Because here's why. Because the, the cost of restoration is always on the one forgiving, not the one needing forgiveness. The one who needs forgiveness can't change what they've done. It's been done, it's been done. But it's on the one who does the forgiving. It's on us. People can do what they're going to do, but we have the option to how we respond. And that's on us. To leave a door open, to, to welcome them back, to bring them back, to be willing to when they're ready. That's a cost. There's a cost involved. I've got to get over my offense. I've got to get over my righteous indignation. I've got to get over my hurt if it's personal for real and say we just I want you back the Lord wants you back and I want to experience that with you if we want to be like Jesus we got to start worrying and being concerned about those that are in trouble Jesus taught us this here's the story Jesus when he was on earth and I wonder if James when James wrote these words I wonder if James remembered Jesus story when Jesus was walking this earth, there was a religious community that thought they were better than the unreligious people. And they had a real problem with those who were outside. They kind of shunned the general population who wasn't religious. And they always came where Jesus was with their arms crossed. 
You know, people are so good at playing church but having no sense of God's grace sometimes. And Jesus was just trying to help. He's always ministering to other kinds of people. In Luke 15, verse 1, it says this. Luke 15, 1 says that tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. Now, other notorious sinners, it's kind of a funny thing. Notorious sinners are sinners who sin in different, more notorious ways than me, you know. I mean, my sin's normal because, hey, nobody's nerfed. But somebody else, notorious sinners. But, but you know, it's funny because these are the classifications that the religious community had in Jesus' day. There was the bad sinners, and then there was the special group that got their own category, the tax collectors. <laughs> they, were, they, they were separated from the, from the other group. The tax collectors were really bad to the religious community. If you want to know how bad they were, we're not referring to, they don't, they, they, we're, not, we're not saying they don't like the people at H and R Block. That's not what this is talking about. Tax collectors represented a group of people who were helping the Roman system. The Roman government had oppressed Israel and took over much of the world, and Israel wanted to be free from Rome. Israel wanted to be great like it used to be. It wanted to be uh, restored. It wanted to be all the things it was. It had a political agenda. The religious community was the most political of them all. Sound familiar? Huh. And, and they were so strong, and they hated the bad people. They hated the sinners, and they also didn't like those the, that, that, the, the Roman, Romans in the wrong politics. And the people who worked in the tax collecting system, there's a lot of layers to that, they were supporting, they were working with the, the current system that the, these people wanted to overthrow. So to them, tax collectors represented the wrong politics. And for a lot of religious people, there ain't nothing worse than being on the wrong side of the political aisle. You could be a lot of things and I'll be okay with you. You're on the wrong side of the political aisle. It's over rover. I mean, that's how people act sometimes. Like, there's nothing more important to me than my politics. And so here's people who they don't believe right or they don't behave right or they don't politic right. It's hard. But they liked Jesus. Somehow Jesus and them connected. It's weird that people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. And Jesus liked people who were nothing like him. So they came to listen to him. And in verse 2 it says this, This made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. I mean, that's a step too far. And so they're upset. Eating with these people? They don't believe right, behave right, or politic right. You need to tell them? You need to tell them what you think about them. You need to mock them, mock their views, mock their behavior, shun them, talk about them, but don't talk to them and don't be with them. Jesus saw this, and so verse 3 says, so Jesus told them this story. He says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Now, that's an illustration that he's using that makes sense in their culture more than ours. Again, this is a very agrarian culture. They raise a lot of crops and farmland, and they raise a lot of cattle. I know some of us might have some connection to some farming in our background, but most of us, we've not raised cattle. Like shepherding for us is just like a thing we read about in our history books or our religious books. I mean, we learned Mary had a little lamb when we were little. That was our first introduction to shepherding, Mary and her lamb. I mean, you know, we, we don't, we've, never been, we've never raised real sheep. I mean, to us, the sheep is just an analogy we use for people who don't think like we do. Don't be a sheep, you know. That's what we mean by sheep. I'm no sheep. You know, we have, we have our own ideas of this analogy. But the people in Jesus' day, these are real shepherds raising real flocks of sheep. This is a common illustration. They understood what he was saying. 
If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Well, you know the answer, don't you? Here's what he'll do. He'll say, one, two, three, four, five, 98, 99. Let's count that again, 98, 99. Oh, well, lost one, can't keep them all. 99 out of 100 is not bad. No. Crazy thing, here's what he would do. Won't he leave? Jesus says, won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness? And the implication there is in the, where they are penned up in the wilderness, or in other words, around the other under-shepherds or sheepdogs. They got, these are safe. Won't, he leave, won't the shepherd himself leave them and say, hey, guys, these ones are cared for, and go search for the one that is lost? How For how long? Until he finds it. The implication here is sacrifice. It's time. If it takes long enough, the journey is long enough, it's money. It's energy. Verse 5, he says this. And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. It's, a, it's, a, it's energy, it's money, it's time, it's sacrifice. Jesus is saying, you understand this, guys. You lose one of your sheep. You'll go out and do whatever it takes to bring that baby home. Verse number 6, Jesus added this. When he arrives, he'll call together his friends and his neighbors and say, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. And they understood that they would do that. Because that's what you do. That's a sacrifice you make to bring one back. Because sheep were important to them. And Jesus was trying to say, people are more important than your cattle. And so he says this in verse 7. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Interesting. It's almost like the other 99 should be offended. What do you mean there's more joy for the one who's straight than, than there is for the 99? Why isn't there more joy for us? We didn't go anywhere. Don't you appreciate us? I've been in church for a long time. I know how it is. Some people can see their church get on mission to be loving people afar from God and loving and serving the community. And some people in church, we can, we can get so self-centered that we're like, what about us? I've heard people say, my church cares about the people who aren't here more than the people who are here. What about me? My needs, my this, my that. And the first thing I say is take it up with Jesus for a minute here. He's like, there's more joy in heaven for the one that comes back than there is of the 99 that never left. Well, that seems, what about us? Because here's the problem with this analogy. Analogies only go so far. And we're, we're all sheep and we could all be in the fold. But here's the thing. At some point, we are called to not just be sheep, but to actually take up the mantle to be like our shepherd, to be under shepherds ourselves. At some point, the analogy breaks down because what we can choose to do as human beings following the idea of shepherding is we can decide to see, I'm going to be so much like Jesus, I'm going to also go out and help find the lost sheep and bring them back myself. But when we sit back and say, why do you care about those lost sheep? I haven't gone anywhere. What about those of us right here? At any church worth having its doors open, that church should be full of people who don't sit back and say, meet my needs, serve me, my preferences, my desires, my feelings, my what's important. We should be people who are saying, I'm good. I know the Lord. He's been good to me. Let not, not just you go out there, but let's all get together and go love people far from God. I don't need a thing. It's not about me. Let's go bring someone to God. That's the heart we should have. That's the heart that Jesus calls us to have.
And he says that there's more joy over them than over 99 others who are righteous and have not gone astray. Here's the funny part. Jesus doesn't say that there's people who have never gone astray. There's none. The Bible says elsewhere there's none righteous. No, not one. We all, all we like sheep have gone astray. What he's saying is he's talking to a bunch of religious people who thought they were righteous. And he's like, look, if you really truly are, then good for you. But here's the thing. Quit making it about you and start caring about getting someone back. That's what God's heart's at. That's what God is doing. If we as Christians spent more time trying to win people back than we do decrying where they are, maybe they'd move back towards us faster. It breaks my heart when I watch Christians, I can't believe how people are. I can't believe how so-and-so is. That person used to know God and walked away. Or that person never did. Arr! Why would anyone want to come back to God when the people who claim to know him are so that? It's not very inviting. It's not very hopeful. not very much good news in that. Don't all of us want to run back to the arms of self-righteous judgment? I mean, maybe if you're, uh, you know, cruel, like if you like cruel and unusual punishment, run back to your tormentors, I guess, right? But most of us don't want to go to people who just look down on us that way and think horrible of us and have their arms crossed and expect us to crawl back into their graces. No one wants that. But we're always decrying the people who are far from God. And here's what we do. Watch out. We decry against people who are what we think wrong in front of each other and then when one of us goes astray, they're like, yeah, I know how that people, those people are. I was with them when they were bashing everybody else. Now that I'm the, I'm, they know how unloved they are. Why would they ever come back? Right? Because our message isn't one of good news or grace or God's love or anything. It's a message of, can you believe those other people? I'm offended. But that's not what Jesus did. And this is how James concludes his letter with a reminder of this amazing love and grace of God for us all, and with a reminder that we are called to join him in doing the same for others as we show his heart. And here's how James wraps up his letter. Verse 19, see it again. This is the end of the letter. My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. Restoration can take place. Tragedy can be avoided. If someone's willing to go do what Jesus talked about in that parable, the hard work that might cost us time, might cost us money, will take our energy and our sacrifice. Say, but what if, they don't, what if I do that and they don't respond well? They might not. What if they don't come back right away? They might not. I'm going to love them anyhow. They might think I'm condoning how they're behaving. No, they won't. But, but listen, listen. I, I've, been, I've been doing this for too long. I've heard Christian people say, that person needs to know how I feel. Newsflash. They know about your beliefs. They need to know where I stand. Newsflash. They know where you stand. What they don't know is that you care. That's not, that's not, that's, we, don't, we don't think that term. We don't, we don't think in those terms. Like the, the number one thing that people who are far from God don't know is that we care about them. They know what we believe. Sometimes they know things we don't even mean to believe by association, but they don't know we care. Well, they need to know what, how much I know. People want to know how much you care before they care how much you know. Say, but, but what if I go on and they don't, they don't come back? And then they're still out there and I've always been nice to them. Oh. Here's the thing about grace. Ready? It's messy. 
Grace is messy. It's so much more clinical and easy to sit there and say, you're with us or you're against us, you're in or you're out. You know, right or wrong, get out. You know, kill them all, let God sort them all out. You know, that whole mentality we can have sometimes. It's so much harder to get in the messy space of grace. It sticks to you sometimes. I said this, this is not in my, I, I've practiced these sermons before I preached them, and I, I've gone long, longer today than I did in my practice both times this morning and right now. And I didn't plan to tell the story, but this it, last hour, it, I came out of me, and um, Anthony said between services, maybe that's the Holy Spirit, so I'm just going to do it again. It's not anything personal but to you, but I remember less than 10 years ago, almost 10 years ago, um, we had a person who used to go to our church, was out um, kind of publicly come out on social media that they were walking away from faith and into a whole different world of living. Most Christians would consider to be very bad and sinful. They did it on Mother's Day of all, and it hit the news and made it a statement about who they were and how they were and what they were. They just kind of announced themselves. And we were back in the, those days, we were not far removed from being from a fundamentalist church background that I was raised in. And I watched a bunch of people that I knew well get in the comment section of that person's announcement about their life on Facebook. And the religious Christian, Jesus, quote-unquote, following people get on their Facebook and just trash that person. You're the wicked and horrible, no, 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 just, you're going to burn in hell, and all just horrible, mean stuff. There was two crowds of people in that person's comment section. One was the people who didn't believe in God saying, don't listen to those jerks, we love you. And the Christian's saying, burn, you know, and I hate you, and just all sorts of stuff. And I sat back there, and I just was sick to my stomach. I wanted to go hug, hug the young man. I said, let's, let's go get coffee. Let's be friends, man. I'm with you. I'm for it. Not because you know, you're saying you're for it. Just stop your, just for a minute. I love him. And I was so appalled by how the church, not, not our church at that moment, but people we had been in church with for a long time prior to that, people we knew who were, just didn't have any grace. If that person wanted to get to the end of their rope one day and realize that life wasn't bringing them what they thought it was going to bring them and ever get to a spot where they, or, or, or find God in the middle of where they were, where would they find that? The people who trashed him to death when they thought he was wrong? See, here's the problem. I'll tell you what the problem is. Yeah, here's the problem. We're the problem. We're the problem. And that's just one little story, and it's a touchy one. But here's the thing. Every situation that someone does something you think they shouldn't do or is going or don't think they should go, they've got this between them and God where that's going to take them. And God can win them back. His goodness can lead them to repentance. Hard knocks of life can bring them around. But it's hard to come around, so to speak, any place where you aren't loved. And the whoever in this verse is the people who are willing to walk that journey as long as it takes. What does the shepherd do until he finds it? As long as it takes to pay the price and time and money and resources and energy and prayer and blood, sweat and tears and get messy. See, it's messy to operate in grace. I know. Ask God how messy grace is. It was bloody messy. 
I said earlier, we should want people back more than we um, want them to pay. Let me take it a step further. We should want people back so much that we are willing to pay. Someone's got to pay. We should be willing to pay. We should be willing to inconvenience ourselves, to be frustrated, to get over our, our lack of sensibilities, or our, get past our sensibilities, and just say to somebody, look, here's the bottom line. I care about you. Not, okay, I got to throw in the I care about you line so I can say what I really am thinking. Make sure that someone knows they're loved. Make sure that message is loud and clear. We, we, we assume they know they're loved, but we assume they don't know what we think. The opposite is usually true. They know what we think. They don't know they're loved. You reaffirm love. You show love. You live love. You demonstrate love. You serve your way into love so clearly. And then when you have something to say, you say it with such grace and humility and kindness in love that what you say can actually make a difference instead of making a point. That's, that, that's, that's hard work for me, Arlen, to do that. Exactly. We should want people so much back so much that we are willing to pay. We'll do the hard work. We'll do what it takes. Isn't that the gospel? Isn't that the good news that Jesus died and buried and was rose again? Isn't the good news that God is love? He so loved the world that he gave. Isn't the good news that very thought right there? That, that, that very thought that, that God, that God himself wanted us back so much that he was willing to pay? Isn't that the gospel? Isn't that what we sing about and preach about? That God wanted us back so bad, so much, that he was willing to pay. And there has been a long divorce in the Christian world that I have seen in my life too many times. There's been a long divorce in our minds between God's grace for us and God's grace for others. I can't tell you all the times in my life I've watched people who are church people sing about God's grace, post on the internet about God's grace, talk about God's grace to their other God people and have so little of it for those around them. Maybe some for those who, who have similar struggles that they've had or that maybe did something wrong in their past that they didn't see personally. But people who believe in God's grace for themselves and certain others, but have none of that grace for those they're watching actively break right in front of their eyes. And I always want to say, stop singing about grace. Let's pack up the show and go home. Let's stop having church. That's what this is about. Let's, let's go home. You, you, you get yourself into a graceless corner in your hostility towards other people that you don't like or don't agree with. And you're going to have to start wondering, if you start sanctioning that they're not loved or right with God because you don't like them, how much can you really believe that you are okay with God? Because you know and I know that we're all flawed and broken on some level. I should love grace so much because I need it most. I should love grace so much because I have been such a beneficiary of God's grace. It's messy. It's hard. It's Roman nails, Roman steel, Roman wood to a cross hard. But God wanted us back so much he was willing to pay. So here's my challenge to you. Let's be like Jesus. Let's be Jesus followers. Or as the word we use so much, let's be Christians. 
Or let's stop playing the game. But I think James is right. Let's close this whole thing off by saying, let's be like Jesus.